Do you dread tax time because you haven't saved enough for taxes? Are you totally confused and lost about your business finances? Do you worry that you'll never be able to retire or save for your kid's college education? If you bury your head in the sand because you think you'll never be a money person, I want to let you in on a huge secret. All you need to manage your private practice finances are a simple series of skills that you can learn. After all, you already did the hard work of graduating from college, becoming a therapist, and starting your private practice. Hi, I'm Lindsay Bonham. I'm a therapist turned money coach and the creator of Money Skills for Therapists. I've helped hundreds of therapists just like you develop peace of mind about their money. I invite you to watch my free masterclass where I teach my four-step framework to get your business finances totally in order. In the masterclass, I cover the three biggest mistakes that therapists make that keep them from getting clarity on their private practice finances, the secret that most accountants don't want you to know, and why working with your mindset and emotions is essential to changing your patterns with money. This masterclass is for therapists and health practitioners who are running or about to start a private practice. It is the first step in learning about my signature course, Money Skills for Therapists. Register today with the link in the show notes to take the first step to go from money confusion, anxiety, and shame to feeling clear and empowered about your money. I look forward to supporting you. I'd rather stay in what I know in in my comfort zone, right? Because it's so comfy, as opposed to go into my learning zone where I can realize things can be different and I can have a different relationship to, again, to money, to my practice, to everything that I do. And that gives you so much more space and it gives you so much more energy to do things and to continue thinking differently in a way that it's not harming anybody, it's pushing against the system as it is, but it just allows you to have so much more space and a healthier relationship with everyone and everything that you are interacting with. Welcome to the Money Skills for Therapists podcast, where we answer this question. How can therapists and health practitioners go from money shame and confusion to feeling calm and confident about their finances and get money really working for them in both their private practice and their lives? I'm your host, Lindsay Bonham, therapist turned money coach and creator of the course Money Skills for Therapists. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Before we get into the episode today, first of all, disclaimer, I will say that as you can hear, I'm a little bit sick. So be prepared for that today. My voice is a little bit off. And I wanted to share a review from Apple Podcasts because I so appreciate when you folks leave the reviews that one of our listeners left. The review is titled Informative Podcast. They write, the podcast has been such a blessing and is so needed. The strategies have been helpful and Lindsay's eloquence, empathy, and constructive approach is so refreshing. This topic is so needed. Thank you so much to the listener who left that review. It means a lot to me. Um, and I say this at the end of the episode a lot, but you, you know, I, you've probably stopped hearing it at this point. Leaving reviews is really the best way for other folks to find us on the podcast platform on Apple Podcasts. So if you are enjoying the podcast and you could take a minute to go leave even just a short little review, I really appreciate it. Today's episode is a conversation with Sylvana Espinoza-Lau. 
She is a psychotherapist and a clinical supervisor in private practice, and she's also an embodied liberation coach for mental health clinicians. She supports mental health professionals who want to incorporate liberation-focused and anti-oppressive values into their practices in an embodied way, and this is very much what we got into today. Sylvana and I talked about specifically BIPOC and marginalized therapists, their relationships to money, some of the specific messages that folks get around money in those communities. We talked about the silence around money and how it keeps these systems in place, uh, like the silence is not accidental. And we also got into perfectionism and shame and not good enough all these things that impact all sorts of folks of all sorts of identities, self-included, that are actually part of these bigger systems and help to keep these bigger oppressive systems in place. It was a really interesting conversation kind of coming to some of the topics that I feel like I explore with my students and that I've explored before, but in a new way and with this lens. I really enjoyed this conversation with Silvana. Here is my conversation with Silvana Espinoza-Lau. Sylvana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Lindsay. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. So before we dig in today, we've got, I'm really excited about what we're going to chat about today. But let's talk a little bit first about the work that you do for people who might not have heard of you yet. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I am a marriage and family therapist in the state of Oregon. So I have a small caseload and I do therapy with uh, people of color in particular and people of other marginalized identities. I am also a clinical supervisor in the state of Oregon and I am also a consultant and a coach. Because of the experiences that I have had personally and professionally, I decided to expand the type of wellness service that I can offer. And I also coach other clinicians who want to incorporate uh, social justice values in their practices. Great. Awesome. Yeah. And I think that's often how, you know, whether you want to call it like a side hustle or like your expanded offers, like yes. that's often how it grows, right? Is like out of our own experiences or like identifying where the holes are for us. Exactly. We step in to do the work that we also have needed. Yes. So I'm curious then, from your experience and your perspective, what affects a BIPOC or otherwise marginalized clinician's relationship with money specifically? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And yes, uh, that question applies both to BIPOC clinicians and to clinicians of marginalized identities as well. And I think that one of the many things that affect that relationship is the fact that for people with marginalized identities, the idea of imposter syndrome is way, way bigger. The idea of I have to work harder than my peer who has uh, privileged identities, whatever those privileged identities are, whether it's the fact that uh, you are a white person, a white clinician, or the fact that you have a PhD, so you have educational privilege, or if you have financial privilege, or any other of the privileges that you can have, right? You can feel that you have to work harder, that you have to work longer hours, that you have to prove your worth, that you have to prove that you know the same things and that you have to adapt and even code switch to what the norm is in our society. And by our society, I am assuming we're both talking about American yeah. 
society, right, with all the normative expectations that we have in culture, in, in, in our culture right now. So it's like I subconsciously feel or I have been given this message that I have to adapt to that norm in order to succeed in that norm. And because I am not that norm, I have this extra hoops that I have to jump through right. and I have this extra energy that I need to spend and that definitely impacts the relationship that a clinician can have with money. So with that imposter syndrome then, or imposter phenomenon, affecting you know BIPOC and marginalized therapists so much more, what might that actually look like in their relationship to money? Like what, what would actually kind of be some examples of how that's going to be showing up for them? I think that one very clear example, and this comes not just from the fact that some of us have more marginalized identities than others, is the messages that we have received. It's this idea, for instance, for all of us, or for most of us, I am assuming people who have been through uh, grad school to go to mental health or you know some uh, profession that has to do with serving others. It's this idea that we are here to serve others, but we're not here to make money. <laughs> right. And if the first example that we have right out of uh, grad school in practicum or in our internships is you're here to learn, but I'm not going to pay you yes. what you deserve. Yes. Right. You have to uh, have a certain productivity. You have to work certain hours. You have to meet this quota of this many clients per day and all of these clients with all these experiences. And we are supposed to do it all. So we already learned this expectation of I have to give myself and I have to put other people first and I have to put my clients first before me. And in the case of people with marginalized identities, I am already code switching in this world where I am not the norm. And on top of that, I have to put others first, my clients, right? Or I have received a similar message to that. My clients are very important. I need to help them. If there's a crisis, I am supposed to answer that phone call, even if it's 7 p.m. at night, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, because it's their well-being. So it's this idea of putting other people first yeah. and this idea of I have to do this so that I can prove that I am worthy of this position or yes. that I am worthy of uh, graduating or so that I have this experience on my resume, on my CV, so that so-and-so agency will hire me. And of course, that expectation is bigger implicitly for people of marginalized identities. And that's so huge. That's some extra energy that clinicians are expending. Sure. Yeah. When you're saying this, um, I was an EMDR clinician when I used to practice. And there's this list in EMDR of like negative cognitions, which I didn't really use once I became a more like experienced EMDR clinician. But like, I remember that list. And as you're saying this, like I'm thinking about the belief, like I am not important. Right. And the way that, you know, that belief or, or you know, side versions of that belief, like uh, variants, like I'm, I'm not worthy or I don't have worth or how those are just being reinforced over and over again for folks mm -hmm. through marginalization in the first place. Um, and through that, you know, the messages, the subtle systemic and overt messages that you're getting, but then also through the training that you get that gets layered on top of that, yes. which just reinforces like you're not important. But then as you're pointing out, and what I think I'm hearing is then you have to work even harder or accomplish more 
to get what the privileged person next to you, the person who has more points of privilege next to you is going to get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it just seems like everything is, I shouldn't say everything, that's that's a little bit over-encompassing, but like it's stacked against you. Exactly. Right? Like you're, the, the way that you work is so much going to be to your own self-sacrifice. Exactly. Because of these different pressures. Exactly. Yeah. With that, you started to talk about our training. Like what messages do you think that clinicians in general get about money and about being business owners, like, you know, within the bigger systems, one of them being capitalism. For sure. For sure. I don't remember a single class in grad school that would generate the discussion of let's talk about money, Mm. right? Whether you're going to private practice or you're going to work for an agency, nobody talked about money, in grad school. No. And for some of us, nobody talked about money in college. And for some of us, nobody talked about money in our families. Oh, yeah. So we have all these different layers of nobody ever talked about money. And how is that possible in a capitalist society Mm -hmm. of all societies? It feels like Mm -hmm. such a double bind to me. I am supposed to live in this system that is a capitalist system, whether I like it or not, whether I agree with it or not. So I am supposed to think of money day in and day out, but I cannot have those conversations. And I don't have those conversations in grad school. I guess the fact that there's not a message that in and of itself is a message, message. right? Is We don't talk about money. Uh, We talk about helping people. And we talk about, at least my experience, this is what community mental health is. And this is what private practice is. And this is what group practice looks like. And we highly suggest that you start with this or that you do this or that you get this experience or, you know, these are the evidence-based practices. And that is all good, but there's not a conversation about money ever. There's not a conversation about you should not equate your worth to how much you're making and you should still make a very decent salary. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I never received that message in in grad school or elsewhere. Therefore, that was the non-message message that I have received. And I think that most of my colleagues have also received either in grad school or as they were uh, going through their professional development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To really clarify it, like what is the non-message message that you think we get through that silence? We don't talk about money. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Just don't talk about money. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because what I mean, what it makes me think about too, and like, you know, capitalism is a whole thing unto itself. And I, it's been a while since I've done some, uh, some in-depth reading about capitalist theory, but it does make me think in a very general sense how there's kind of like people who like, strive and win in capitalism by like having others who they're pushing down and then those who are being pushed down. And I'm like, if you're of the class that doesn't talk about money, you're probably the ones who are supposed to be not making money and the ones who are supposed to be like kind of being exploited, right? If we want to be very simplistic, exploit or be exploited. Yeah, we are certainly not being set up to exploit others, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's for damn Mm -hmm. sure. (laughs) (laughs) But in doing so, then there's like this, as you say, like we do also need money though to live. Of course. Right. And so there, there's a contradiction there. You know, it's like, exactly. you know, we don't want to get into the thing where we think that we're only worth, you only have a successful practice if you're making six figures or if you're, you know, hitting these certain like lifestyle, these materialistic goals. But at the same time, we know that we need money to be well and to navigate for sure. the world that we live in. For sure. For sure. And I do think that it's so hypocritical, the fact that for some people, because of the messages that we have received, for some people, it's okay to make money. 
right? Uh, we have these millionaires, billionaires making money and investing and, you know, all the things that they do. And yeah, we can criticize them and period. We criticize them, but they continue making money. But but what about us? I think that there's nothing wrong with changing our relationship to money. And there's nothing wrong with creating generational wealth, for instance, right? To me, the idea is if I am going to live in a capitalist society because I just cannot move to, you know, to um, my plot of land and live off the land. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if that yeah. is not a possibility, if I have to live within these systems, I will try to make, I would want to make the system work in my favor. And how can I, if you will, reappropriate that system so that it benefits me and it benefits the people around me in a good way? What's wrong with me making more money? And so that I, in turn, I can be a better clinician in my case, have more space, have more energy to serve the people that I want to serve and serve them better and have enough money so that I can rest, so that I can be creative, so that I can think of other ways in which I can help others and be even more creative and have more space to think of other ways in which I can invest that money still in benefit of my community, yes. which is what I want to do. And I think it's possible. And I know that I'm not the only one doing that. So I, I think that, again, it's so hypocritical that for some people, it seems to be okay that they have this money and they can continue investing and they are educated about money, but but that is not our reality. Like, how can that happen if we are both existing within the same system? Yeah. And I mean, what it makes me think about too, as you're saying that is like, I think sometimes it's easy to get into this very simplistic narrative about like, money's bad. Look yeah. at like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and like, <laughs> yes. what are they doing to make the world better yeah good questions good questions a very good you question. know but it's like you look at a fortune like that and the money that that one person has amassed could drastically change the quality of life and the well-being of community of literally hundreds of thousands of people what this yes. one person individual has amassed and it's like yes. there is so much uh, potential in that money when it gets into the hands of people who like making the difference between a household bringing in $40,000 a year and $100,000 a year is a massive quality of life difference. Mm -hmm. It brings down the stress in that household. It builds up the opportunity and supports for the children of that household. You know, it's like positive ripple effects outwards. And it, it's not the same as like the like immense amassing of wealth on the far mm -hmm. end of somebody who could never actually possibly get more enjoyment out of money than they've already got <laughs> because they have multi-billions, exactly. right? At that point, the money is having no more positive impact. But if you think about all the households that would benefit immensely from 100,000 more a year, it's a different, it's almost like a completely different situation, mm -hmm. the way that that money work is going to work in those different circumstances. Yes. Yeah. Completely. And yet we're all within the same system. And it's like, we, we're feeling bad because we want to make $100,000 a year. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but somebody over here is making 300 million a year or even a billion a year. So yeah, there's kind of almost like a different set of ethics that's being put on people. Completely. Completely. Right. And we're supposed to be the ones who are so ethical and we have these boards and, and, you know, all these institutions and agencies to uh, ensure that we are acting, behaving ethically. But again, there's not a conversation about money, really, for clinicians. 
And I think we should have, I think the fact that there's not a conversation is also very oppressive. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, how, again, for those Jeff Bezos, as you were saying, for those Elon Musks, it's okay. But why it's not okay for us? I I think that's very oppressive. You know, we should be able to have those conversations. We should be able to make it okay that I want to, I don't know, I want to leave my nine to five and I want to go into private practice or uh, I have enough energy to create change within my nine to five job in, you know, community mental health. That should be an okay conversation to have. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we're talking about this, it also makes you think about how having these conversations is powerful because you are pushing against the silence. Like that silence is part of what keeps things the way that they are. Yes. Completely, completely. Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about pushing against the silence, it reminds me of even in private practice, if you're working, if you're paneled with insurance companies, Mm -hmm. you are not supposed, you sign an agreement that says you are not supposed to share your rate with other clinicians, right? You're not supposed to talk about your rate. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some point I thought, well, yeah, that makes sense. But does it make sense? Really? Isn't that also oppressive? Can't I talk about what is my fee compared to your fee? Mm-hmm. to make sure that we are being paid a fair amount. Yeah. Because if I know how much you make and it's way less than what I make, again, it doesn't equate to my worth, right? But still, can I go to that company, to that insurance company and request for a for an increase? Mm-hmm. If, but if I don't know... Yeah. yeah, that silence is disempowering, right? It's yes. Like, it kind of keeps people apart. Yes. And it almost makes me think like, you know, because I'm thinking about capitalism right now in a very... It makes me think almost like they're they're stopping you from unionizing. Exactly. Right? They're stopping the clinicians from getting yes. together and being like, just a second, why is this person yes. getting 87 and this person's getting 77? That's not fair. That doesn't make sense. Completely. But like that silence keeps people apart. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, again, very, very oppressive, right? The idea of oppression is the fact that you are over here in your world and I am over here in my world, but we're not together in community supporting each other mm-hmm. uh, so that we can affect positive change, whatever that looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And that silence really is detrimental to community and to being together and to connecting. Absolutely. Yeah. So another piece, you know, thinking about oppressive systems is is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, from your perspective, like how does capitalism and also white supremacy, how does that affect the relationships that clinicians can have to money and and to being successful when they have actually done the work to build up a successful practice? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And and again, I think it's tied to what we have, what we've been talking about, because at least for clinicians, right, the idea of existing within a white supremacy culture, it's the idea of We have grown up and we have received this message that there is a norm, right? Mm. For clinicians is the fact that we all learn or 99% of us, if not 100% of us, we learn Western white psychology and we live in a Western white patriarchal system, right? And it's not until someone points that out that we realize sometimes that we realize that something is wrong, or it's not until we are experiencing so many illnesses and so many stressors that we realize that something is wrong. So I think that 
capitalism and that white supremacy culture also affects uh, us, affects us as clinicians, and especially clinicians of marginalized identities, because it's, again, it's this pushback of this is the norm and this is how things are supposed to be. And this is how therapy is supposed to be done. And these are the expectations and the requirements. And this is how you should conduct yourself. And this is how you're supposed to be professional. And these are the conversations that you can have. And these are the conversations that you cannot have. Right. Right. So again, as a clinician, maybe in the beginning, I don't realize that I am doing this, but I am code switching to fit this norm of the... um, I will say it again, of the evidence-based practice and the treatment that lasts 10 to 30 sessions or, you know, this very many hours of work and the fact that I am not supposed to talk about money or I should not prioritize money because shame on me for thinking of money. I should be thinking about my clients and I should be thinking about the next training that I am going to take, (laughs) (laughs) right, so that I continue my professional development. So I think it's very tied to what we were talking about before. And it is very toxic because, again, I have nothing against evidence-based practices. They are very useful for certain people, right? And I have nothing against 10-session treatment. It's also very useful depending on the the challenge that you have. And uh, I have nothing against the fact that you may be more or less open to talking about money, but as long as you are educated around money, that's, that's great, right? But it's the fact that we have this expectations from the culture and from the system and from the norms. And I think that we should question those expectations. And I should have this conversation with myself of, am I okay with this or not? And if I am not okay, what can I do different that is not harming others? Right? Because as long as it's not harming others, why can't I do things differently? Or why can't I operate differently? Or why can't I have a different relationship to my practice, to money, to myself, to my clients, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about it, I'm kind of picturing as like, you know, white supremacy is like this box. And it's like, stay in the box. and You can't yes. step outside the box because anything yes. outside of the box is lesser than exactly. a certain way of doing things and evidence-based practice. And, you know, I I remember, you know, thinking back in the day when I was practicing like, well, yeah, but who has the money to pay for evidence, right? Like, which which modalities get the, the funding exactly. to gather evidence to be evidence-based, right? Exactly. And like, who are they benefiting? Exactly you know, like these, these bigger questions, it's like, you know, the the white supremacy is like, get in the box, don't think about it, don't talk about it. And if Mm -hmm. you're deviating from this, you're not good, you're not as good, Mm -hmm. you're, you're lesser than and like, yeah, something else that I, you know, was also kind of coming into my mind as you were talking about this is I I saw a list of like the tenets of white supremacy. And one of them is perfectionism, right? Like, that's one of the things that holds it in place. And like, that's something I see so much clinicians struggle with is it's like, needing to be perfect, needing to be good, like, not even wanting to work on their relationship with money, because it's like, it's such a mess. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. Yes. I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm just going to stay over here where I'm good at this thing because I I need to be perfect. I need to be perfect. And like the tightness that comes with that Mm -hmm. and like the lack of connection or curiosity or like willingness to kind of like learn and stumble and Mm -hmm. feel your way through something is also part of a white supremacist culture. You're not allowed to deviate or make mistakes. 
Definitely. Or be like a work in progress. The, oh, yes. Work in progress. I love that. Yeah. I bet that uh, many of us have Googled, you know, white supremacy culture or the, the what is it? The, the iceberg, I believe they call it of white supremacy mm. culture. Yes. On top, you have like racism and all of these big isms and phobias. But in the, the bottom or under the surface, you have things such as perfectionism, right? That some of us may think, well, of course, that sounds like a good idea. I am trying to be better day after day, but the idea of perfectionism is so unattainable. Yes. And it's the idea of being perfect compared to this norm again, yes. right? And it's a norm that not everybody fits, right? Exactly. If yes. I am not white, if I yes. am not uh, neurotypical, if I am not thin, if I am not, you know, a citizen, et cetera, and so many more things, then I am not going to fit that idea of the norm. And so this perfectionism becomes so unhealthy, right? Yeah. And like you're saying, I can feel so much shame because of the things that I don't know and that I am assuming that others know. And yeah, I'd rather stay here in in what I know in, in my comfort zone, right? Because it's so comfy as opposed to going into my learning zone where I can realize things can be different and I can have a different relationship to, again, to money, to my practice, to everything that I do. And that gives you so much more space and it gives you so much more energy to do things and to continue thinking differently in yeah. a way that it's not harming anybody. It's pushing against the system as it is, you know, but it just allows you to have so much more space and a healthier relationship with everyone and everything that you are interacting with. Yeah. I, I mean, like a word that you've said multiple times during our conversation is like, like connection. Yeah. Right. And I think yeah. so much of what, you know, we're talking about today with like capitalism and white supremacy and, and even I think our lack of education around money, yeah. there's like lack of connection, connection, right? Lack of connection to self, to your community, maybe even to your clients, because you're practicing in a way that's not authentic yeah. to you, or that's not going to reach them because it's exactly. within like certain norms that don't fit mm -hmm. for them. And I'm curious, like, is connection an antidote for some of these systems? Or are there other things you think about that are like, you know what, like, what do we, what do folks do instead? And, and I say we, and, and it's not an equal we, right? Like, as you're talking about perfectionism, I'm like, I'm looking at my extremely pale face on our recording. And it's like, as you were talking earlier about that, like, imposter syndrome and like needing to strive and be more and do more, that's not equal across the board, right? Like, I, as a, a, a white person, start way ahead in terms of being ideal or perfect or sure. seen, like being able to be recognized as successful than so many other folks, right? But I'm curious, like, yeah, what do you see as as the balance to this? Or what are what are folks to do to offset living in these systems? It may sound simple, but I think that the balance is finding connection and relationships and community. Mm -hmm. And by connection, I mean connection to everyone and everything, right? And I don't mean I need to find a best friend and I need to find a buddy or I need to find a peer. We think of connection and we think of relationships as other people or the people around me and sometimes myself, right? I definitely need to be in connection with myself. I need to know what I need, what I want. I need to know what my boundaries are. The things that we discuss with our clients, right? Mm -hmm. I need to apply yeah. that to myself sure. yeah. as well. <laughs> I need to be in connection with 
the people around me, whether those are family members or friends or my coworkers. And I am not saying befriend everyone, but the idea of being in connection is understanding who this person is, understanding what my identities are, maybe not understanding or experiencing the identities of my coworkers or peers or friends, but understanding that there's a gap between me and them right? Mm -hmm. And understanding that because of that gap, I have had a certain set of experiences mm -hmm. and they have had a certain set of experiences. Yeah. yeah. Neither is better or worse than the other. It's just a set of experiences that we've had. And those experiences are either more privileged or less privileged, right? But we don't think about our relationship. Sometimes we don't think about our relationship to things, right? My relationship to my practice and my relationship to the board, and my relationship to this set of rules from my governing body, the ACA or the Social Worker Association or the one for LMFTs. And I don't think of my relationship to money or to all the other things that I need in my practice, right? How am I feeling towards that? And how are my parts or my different identities feeling towards that? What are the messages that I have received? How would I like to change that relationship in a way that would make me more content or more satisfied with the values that I hold. So that is something that we sometimes don't think about, right? So again, I'm not talking about necessarily befriending everyone, but just being in connection because then I can understand better what the other person needs, what I need, what are my, again, the boundaries that I want to set and the needs that I have. And I think that's very important to be in community, to be in connection, because then I can understand that I am not alone, that I'm not the imposter, <laughs> that people around me are also dealing with perfectionism. Sure. Yes. And oh, yes. just like group therapy, maybe that can help decrease the shame yeah. or, or the guilt or the frustration or whatever other feeling that I am having, I can understand that those feelings are more universal yes. and yes. that it is more about the systems that I am living in. It is not about the people so much, but about the systems and how we have made that system so okay mm -hmm. uh, when it shouldn't. And that would empower me to actually question the system as opposed to question myself, <laughs> right? So I start thinking, maybe there's nothing wrong with me. Maybe there's everything wrong with the system that I am living in yeah. that is asking so many things of me that don't make sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes me think about earlier, you mentioned, you know, about like insurance companies, not, you're not supposed to communicate with a neighbor next to you, like your, your peers about yeah. their fees. Yes. And it's like, yeah, because when we do that, we realize like, oh, there's this weird, unfair thing happening here. That's not actually because of me. Like I'm not, I'm not only getting paid $55 an hour because I'm a bad clinician and I can't support my family and all exactly. these things, that, these shame spirals that we can go exactly. into, but like, oh, there's like this uneven kind of unjust system at play uh -huh. um, that by connecting with others, you could actually illuminate that experience rather than having you be the problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, yes. If we are in isolation, we th we can start thinking that we are the problem or that there's something wrong with us, right? But if we are connected, we can start realizing that, oh, there are other people, unfortunately, having the same or a similar experience to the one that I am having. Therefore, what's the thing that needs to change here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> is right. it us or is it the, you know, the systems in place that we're yes. living in? Right. Yeah. 
yeah, the problem is not that you're not good enough. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Sylvana, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. If folks are listening, want to get further into your world, where's the best place for them to find you? Sure. They can find me at uh, www.seventhselfconsulting.com or they can also find me on Instagram and my handle there is decolonize your practice. That's a great handle. Thank you. Great. Thank you. It's been great talking with you today. It was nice talking to you as well. In my conversation with Silvana, something that really stuck out to me is the the double whammy <laughs> that folks get when you're in marginalized in any way or you know multiple marginalizations depending on your identity and then also a therapist at the same time. It's like from two different sources, you know, based on your identity, but then also based on your profession, you get the message over and over again that you're you're not good enough and you need to strive and you need to be perfect and your needs are not important and other people's needs are. And just how, what a powerful cocktail that is in the worst sense of the word, getting those messages in all these different ways and how that deeply impacts um, people as, as clinicians as people living their lives, but also deeply impacts your financial well-being, right? Your ability to make the money that you need to make, relate in positive ways to the money that you make are deeply impeded by these messages that, you know, people get from all sides. So really appreciated um, this conversation today with Sylvana. And if you are curious about her, definitely check her out. We're going to put her links in the show notes so you can get further into her world. If you're enjoying the podcast, as I mentioned at the beginning, please do leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, It's super helpful. It means a lot to me. I'm going to be sharing more reviews um, this season in season five, and I would love to share your review. So take a minute and jump over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review. And of course, if you want to hear more from us, you can also follow me on Instagram at Money Nuts and Bolts. Thank you for listening today.